This is what Moses writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Jacob lived in the land of his fathers, sojourning in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his, other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams. That's the third time that word has shown up here. And he dreamed another dream, and behold, he told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow yourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Let's pray. Lord, um, you, you can use all things to further your kingdom. And so, Father, I pray that through your, the power of your word, that you would help us this morning to see how you can even use the foolishness of our own attitudes to bring about your accomplished will. And it's in Jesus' name that I ask this. Amen. Well, in musical theater, there's always uh, one song that stands out above the rest. It's that one song that if you just mention the title of the song, you'd be able to tell exactly what musical it comes from. So if I were to say the title, Fiddler on the Roof, what would be the title song that you would think of right away? If I were a rich man, right? What if I said the song, Edelweiss? Sound of music, right? Okay, let's make it a little bit harder. Old Man River. Show, who said that? Was that Wayne? You are full of surprises, sir. I love it. I love it. How about memory? Oh, wow, okay. Some enchanted evening. South Pacific. Yeah. One more. On the street where you live. My Fair Lady. Okay. That's great. Well, 41 years ago, one of the most famous musicals ever took the stage for the first time. It was a musical adaptation of Victor Hugo's phenomenal 
uh, novel, Les Miserables. And though there are a few standout songs, actually there are a lot of standout songs in that particular musical, there's one that consistently wins the hearts of listeners and the audience. It's one of those rare pieces uh, that both the music and the lyrics line up perfectly to connect with the audience. It's a song called I Dreamed a Dream. And in I Dreamed a Dream, it's a lament, which is a song, uh, it's an expression of grief, and it's an expression of sorrow. And it's sung by this character named Fantine, who had just been fired from her job at a factory, and she was thrown out onto the cruel streets of France, only to become a, only to become a prostitute. And it resonates so much with us. Because every one of us knows what it's like to look back on happier days when we had a dream of what life would be like that would just be amazing and perfect and everything would fall into place. But when, uh, when we look at our life and the way that it turned out, sometimes it certainly does not seem like that dream that we had dreamed so long ago. The song starts with Fantine singing. I'm not going to sing it for you because I can't do it justice. Someone groan over that? Oh, thought I would get applause for that. There was a time when men were kind, when their voices were soft and their words were inviting. There was a time when love was blind and the world was a song and the song was exciting. There was a time. But as she goes through the song after much reflection, the song ends with this. I had a dream that my life would be so different from this hell that I'm living. So different now from what it seemed. Now life, life has killed the dream that I dreamed. Genesis chapter 37 begins the story of a young man who, like Fantine, dreamed a dream. And like Fantine, this young man's dream, though it was a literal dream, would send him into the depths of despair. Unlike Fantine, however, this man Joseph would not end up with a nihilistic view of the world, which is simply to say that, that this life is just pointless and everything in this world is pointless. This young man, because of his dreams, would go to hell and back. Bringing, uh, being sold into slavery, wrongly imprisoned, and then would be redeemed and used to save his family and the future of God's people. His is a story that helps us uh, to see how the tragedies and how the evils of life are, are connected with the loving sovereignty of our God. And the story of Joseph helps connect those dots of the hard times to the glory of God in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And it helps us to dream a dream of a life that may not be perfect, but one that points to the glory and the goodness of Jesus Christ. And today we begin that profound story of Joseph, 
a story that many of us are, are, are very, very familiar with. And our goal for, for this entire series over this next 13 chapters is to see the goodness and sovereignty of God through life's hardships and its triumphs and its trials. And our goal for today is to take comfort in the fact that God can use our own shortcomings and our own personal failures and even our quirks within his plan of redemption in our lives. I have only one point and one point only today, and that is that we should expect God to use even our foolishness. We should expect God to use even our foolishness. Verse 2 takes us right to this incredible story simply by describing the character of this, this Joseph. It says, Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. Now, if we were uh, to... Um, leave it at that, we would say that for the most part, here was a normal kid living in the ancient Near East. He is learning the family business of uh, being a shepherd alongside of his, his brothers, but Joseph hardly had a normal backstory. Though his father Jacob seemed to finally settle down recently, he had lived most of his life as a trickster and as well as a swindler. Jacob had four wives, and we can see how well that worked out for him in the past story and in this story. His wife, Rachel, was the obvious favorite. And the other three, whose name was Leah, who was Rachel's sister, and also Zil, uh, Zilpah and Bilhah, uh, really seemed to be viewed by Jacob simply as accessories, as objects to be used in order to further God's promise of Jacob having a lot of children. And they were very, very good at that. Of the, uh, of the 13 children that, uh, that he had with these four women, 11 of them came from these three uh, women. And while Rachel was the trophy wife of Jacob, she was barren most of her life. And the Lord ended up opening up her womb, and she bore a, a son, and they named him Joseph. And because Rachel was the favored wife, Jacob favored Joseph over all of his children. Joseph was, in, in Jacob's mind, the firstborn heir of all of the other children, even though he was 12th in order. His favoritism is shown in chapter 3, when, uh, when Jacob is fearing meeting his brother Esau. Because remember, he stole Esau's birthright, and he got word that Esau's coming to meet him, and Jacob is fearful. He thinks that Esau is going to come and wipe them all out. What does he do? He puts all of his other wives and children in the front, and he keeps Rachel and Joseph in the back. And seemingly so that if they were to be attacked, at, at least Rachel and, and Joseph would be, would, could be spared by running away while all of the others would uh, potentially be slaughtered. 
Do you think that things like that escape the eyes of his other children? No, they see that favoritism. It was obvious that Joseph was the favorite, which would cause major problems within the family. And of course, Joseph knows that he is the favorite. And he plays to that. Yes, he'll end up becoming the hero of the story, but at least here in chapter 37, in these first 11 verses, any one of us really wouldn't want to like Joseph. Again, verse 2 tells us that, that Joseph is out pastoring the flock with his half-brothers Gad and Asher and Dan and Nephtali, and who knows what happened. But verse 2 goes on to say that Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now, that word bad report there doesn't necessarily mean that uh, they did something wicked. The word that is used there is more like tattling. Or it's more of an exaggeration. Or potentially even making up a story. Imagine a brother making up a story about another brother and something that they did. Now, if you've ever grown up with younger siblings or any number of siblings, there's nothing worse than a snitch. Especially if what they're snitching on you for is something that maybe you didn't do. Or it's exaggerated, or maybe it's even petty. And you'd expect something like that from a five-year-old. But what does the text tell us? Joseph was 17 years old, and he knows that he has the ear of his father. As parents, it's really easy for us to get sucked into the whole tattling thing, isn't it? And obviously we need to resist that. Jacob did not. Jacob rewarded Joseph for his attitude. Verse 3 tells us, Now Israel, that's another name for that, that's the name that God gave to Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. So instead of saying to Joseph, you know what, I, I, I really don't want to hear the tattling. Why don't you just go and try to work it out with your siblings? Instead of doing that, he makes him a robe. Now the ESV translation that, that, that I have read from here sort of follows suit with the, with the King James Version in, in the Greek text, and it says, a robe of many colors. It's why Andrew Lloyd Webber uh, titled his musical, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. But in reality, it probably wasn't this, this flashy thing. Rather, the Hebrew here points to a very special dress coat, one that would not have been used very often for anything. And in fact, there's only one other place in the entire Old Testament that this term is even used, and it's in 2 Samuel 13, which describes a princess robe. And uh, from that, we can gather that this robe would have been one that would have described royalty. So as Joseph wore this robe, it would have been clear to his brothers, and it would have been clear to the community who the honored prince is in the family. And Joseph 
wears it proudly. And oddly enough, his brothers look on, and in verse 4, it says, When the brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. The, the word peacefully there is the, is the word shalom, which many of us are familiar with. It's, it's the term of wholeness and, and peace and, and, uh, and just inner, inner goodness. In a Jewish community, you would greet people, shalom. They couldn't even give him this simple greeting because they are so harboring bitterness within themselves. And so from that perspective, it's understandable to believe that they hated Joseph. That they couldn't even speak peaceably to him. And it gets even worse. Verse 5 continues to show Joseph's immaturity. It says, now when Joseph, uh, Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, surprise, surprise, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and, and behold, that, that word behold, by the way, is, is like, look, hey, check this out. Hey, check this out. My sheaf arose and stood upright. And check this out. Your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. How do you think that went over? Now, Joseph may have simply just thought that it was a good idea to share this dream with his with his brothers, or maybe he thought that he had the protection of his father, but for whatever reason, he feels inclined that he has to share this dream with his brothers. And as a reader, or if you've even had siblings, or been a sibling, doesn't it come to your mind to just say, Joseph, are you that daft? Like, why even say anything? What is the purpose of telling them this dream? Why not keep it to yourself? And his brothers obviously get it right away. Verse 8 tells us, His brother said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. In their mind, he is just making all this up. It's just another one of our little brother's stories that he's made up. And it's just another insult to their father's favoritism. And you can just sense that the thermometer is rising higher and higher within that family home. But wait, there's more. He dreams another dream. And in his youthful arrogance, he goes beyond just sharing it with his brothers, but this time he includes his father. Verse 9. And he dreamed another dream. Told it to his brothers, and it says later on here that he told it to his father as well. Behold, I've dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. And anyone living in the ancient Near East here would have understood the symbolism of this dream. 
The sun and the moon being a mother and a father and the stars being the children here. And what are the number of, of stars that are bowing down? Eleven. That just happens to be the number of brothers that he has? What a coincidence of a dream. And what are they doing? They're not worshiping another star. It says that the moon and the sun and the stars were bowing down to him personally. And what Joseph has just uttered to a family would have been incredulous to insist that a father, the patriarch of the family, would bow down to a son is an insult. And now for the first time, we actually see Jacob stepping up and calling out his son. Verse 10, when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? Now the interesting thing is here is that his mother, Rachel, is dead at this point. She's not living. This has led many to believe that either uh, the, uh, the person uh, we believe to be Moses that put the story together here went out of order or these scriptures are possibly true. And I, and I don't think there's any conflict here when we, when we look into what is happening here because it's really not that strange for those of us that have lost someone that is very close to us. It's not abnormal to have dreams in which they are in the dream. Many of us have lost either children or spouses or parents and have had those people, for lack of a better term, visit us in a dream. Our mind is on them for whatever reason. So I'm not going to dismiss this as some detail somehow proving that Scripture is wrong. And neither does Jacob. He doesn't even miss a beat here. This dream is insulting, yes, but one thing that's important to understand about the ancient Near Eastern culture is that they placed a high view of divine um, sharing of information through dreams. And Jacob had experienced this as well. When he was going out to, uh, away from his home, away from Esau, and he ended up going over to Laban and meeting his, his wives, he had a dream on the way, and the Lord visited him in a dream. If you remember the, the stairway uh, or the, uh, um, the ladder that we looked at a number of months ago that Jacob had in his dream. And so when Jacob... Uh, said to Joseph, what is this that you have dreamed? He understood that we don't have control over our dreams. And many times we can't even explain our dreams. Now, if I were to tell you the substance of some of my dreams, you'd probably want to put me in the loony bin because they don't make sense. And a lot of us are in that same, uh, that same boat. We'll wake up in the morning whoa, what a weird dream I had. And we'll explain it, and it just will make absolutely 
no sense. And it is not as if we decide that as we're about to doze off and we've got the alarm set and we feel sleep coming on, we can't just say to ourselves, hmm, I think I'm going to dream something really strange tonight. Here's what I'm going to dream about. We have absolutely no control over those things. Those things just happen. And in a culture that dreams, uh, that views dreams as potentially prophetic, Jacob might be a bit put off, but he doesn't dismiss it. Verse 11, his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. So the, the pressure cooker is about to burst here as far as his brothers go. This hatred has now turned into jealousy, which we'll see next week is, uh, we'll read of one of the, the worst crimes in the Bible. It'll be the straw that breaks the camel's back because Joseph is not angering normal brothers. Normal brothers would just chalk this up and say, oh, he, that's, just, that's just Joseph. You know, we're going we're gonna to love him anyway, but he, it's, it's just Joseph being Joseph. Joseph's dealing with cold-blooded killers here. And that's been proven in the chapters before. We'll talk about that a little more next week. Their father, however, kept the saying in mind. And it's with that line that we begin now to see the redemptive purposes of God in the midst of this young and immature kid. As he utters this offensive prophecy to his father, again, what does the text say? That his father kept the saying in mind. Now, in putting the side note uh, in here, Moses is foreshadowing another utterance that another parent would make about another child. There would be a night many generations later in which shepherds, not unlike Joseph and his brothers, would be watching over their flocks and a, and a divine message would come to them. Not one that would come in a dream, but rather one that would come in the manifestation of angels telling them that someone had been born. And that they were to go and see this Christ child. And when they had made their journey to the stable where this Christ child had, uh, had been laid, the shepherds uh, told all who were there about everything that had transpired and, and what they had heard earlier that night. And Luke chapter 2 says this, And all who, wondered, who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured all of these things, pondering them in her heart. In other words, like Jacob, she kept this saying in mind. Now, it's not all that unusual for a new parent 
to gush over their baby and treasure up in their heart all the nice and wonderful things that people say about this newborn baby. But what connects Mary to Jacob is the, dis the disturbing nature of what these utterances mean for those that they are made for. There is no way that Jacob could have guessed that not only would these dreams come true, but as we'll see in the coming weeks, there's no way that Jacob could have seen the path that Joseph would have to take in order to get to that reality. There's no way that Jacob could have seen that his son's hatred for his favorite son, Joseph, would lead them into selling Joseph into slavery. That one day he would be imprisoned falsely for being accused of a rape he didn't commit. There's no way that Jacob could have seen that Joseph would rise to the position of prime minister of Egypt and that he would become the savior of the future nation of Israel by rescuing them from a severe famine. And in the same way, when the shepherds greeted Mary in the stable that night, and she pondered all of their words in her heart, there is no way that she could have seen the path that this baby would take in order to get there, to be the savior of his people to a far greater extent than Joseph. This child in the manger, like Joseph, would also be rejected by his brothers. He would be considered crazy by his brothers and sisters. And beyond that, he would be rejected by the entire community of Israel, the one that he, the one that he was sent to redeem. One of his closest friends would sell him not into slavery, but would sell his life for 30 pieces of silver. Joseph would be raised up and exalted over all Egypt and thus save God's people from famine. Jesus would be exalted by being raised up and dying on a bloody cross, saving his people from sin and eternal punishment. When Joseph dreamed about the sheaves and the sun and the moon and the stars bowing down to him, he was not only giving insight as to what would happen one day later in his life, but later he was pointing to the day yet to come when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Though Joseph would be sold into slavery through Jesus' suffering, we would be saved from slavery to sin. And what this text is pointing to is the germination of the idea that Jesus is greater than Joseph. And from that, we need to take two things away. The first is that God works in every situation. He works in every situation. That's going to be the common theme, uh, a common theme that's going to run throughout all of these chapters. Though Joseph would be humbled and he would grow up spiritually, 
We should not put Joseph on this pedestal as if he was sinless. If there's anything in this text that we can learn uh, about ourselves is that we are like Joseph in the sense that we are often given over to immaturity frequently. We say things that we shouldn't. We do things that we shouldn't. We think things that we shouldn't. And the truth is, our thoughts, our words, and our actions have consequences. We may not have brothers and sisters that are ready to kill us or to sell us into slavery, but our immaturity often hurts and strains relationships. We need to grow up into maturity. And the problem that many of us don't want to face, however, is that Christian maturity often comes on the road that is marked with suffering. And the story of Joseph helps us to recalibrate our minds into a realistic understanding of ourselves, our sin, and its consequences. It doesn't mean that Joseph deserved what he got. It simply means that we live in a sinful world, and oftentimes... We contribute to it. And second and most importantly, we need to see that God is a big God. Friends, God is not shocked. God is not surprised by our immaturity. He is very well aware of it. But just because he isn't pleased with our immature words, thoughts, and actions doesn't mean that he doesn't use them in his plan of redemption. He does. He used Joseph's brother's sin against him, which we'll see next week, to save the people of Israel. He used the sin of David to bring about the king of kings. He used the sin of Judas who sold him in order to accomplish the redemption that we have on the cross. And he will use even the ugliest parts of our lives to point to the magnificent grace by which he has given to us in Christ Jesus our Lord who lived died, rose, and ascended on high so that our foolishness can even be used by God for his glory. You see, when Fantine sang, I dreamed a dream, it was not only a lament of what her life had become, it was also prophetic in the sense that it would lead to her death. Joseph dreamed a dream that would lead to his slavery, his imprisonment, but also his exaltation. He may have held the brother's hatred, uh, his brother's hatred, but because he dreamed of a bunch of sheaves, even the sun and the moon and 11 stars bowing down to him, he held the future of our redemption. Because those sheaves and celestial objects were prostrated not to Joseph the prime minister of Egypt, but to Jesus, who is the prince of heaven, 
the King of Kings, in whom all of our quirks and all of our mistakes and all of our sins are redeemed and used for his glory. So friends, today, why not drop the cynicism? Why not drop the guilt, drop the shame, drop the anxiety, and whatever it is that is holding you back, and come and trust in Jesus? You can dream a dream today in which mercy and forgiveness and redemption are yours. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to this message from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Mora, Minnesota. For more information about our church, you can find us on the web at www.emmanuelmora.com or on Facebook by searching for Emmanuel Mora. If you like what you've heard, don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel. If you'd like to partner with us in our mission, consider giving financially to our ministry. You can conveniently give right from your mobile device by texting any word to 320-313-1950. There are options for one-time giving or recurring gifts on the schedule that you set. Thanks again for listening. Emmanuel Mora. Knowing Christ and making Him known.